Let's start right after you're done with that. You good? Yeah, he's okay. All right, so we're going to take some time to answer those questions tonight. We got, I think, 10 or 12 questions. So probably what we'll do, since we're going to be doing this again next week, is we're, we're not even going to pretend like we'll answer all 10 tonight. Uh, if we do make fast progress through these questions, then um, that's okay. We'll tackle as many as we can. We'll, we'll plan on wrapping up at a reasonable time tonight. Feel free during the course of this discussion to, uh, to chime in if you need clarification or you want to ask um, for further details on any of the answers that we're giving. And uh, we don't pretend to have the answer for every question, but uh, we know that with the Word of God, we've got what we need. So um, if there are things that come up that we can't give you a good answer for, we're happy to, to seek those answers out and to encourage you in, um, in following up with those questions and helping you to get the answers that you need. So does that sound good? All right, so just to uh, make it clear for the audio, we've got Pastor Paul Abeda, we've got uh, John Williams, who's elder in training, and we've got myself, Nick Neves, and so um, we're going to start at the top. I actually have a list for you guys if you want to see the questions here. Um, Question number one, uh, can church be an idol? Idolatry being a sin that we need to be aware of, a sin that we need to battle against. And uh, often we think of idolatry, we think of money, we think of fame, we think of particular material things that we spend too much time thinking about or too much time and money investing in. So church sounds like a little bit different than those categories. Can church be an idol, guys? I would say anything can be an idol. If you, if you make it an idol, I mean, but the church is not an idol. It's the ecclesia, it's the body of Christ. Um, it's a people group, a called out set of elect believers. But like anything that's good, we can turn it into something bad. Um, it doesn't matter what it is. So, What are some ways we might do that, Paul? What are some of the missteps that we might take that could cause the church to become like an idol to us? Yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a kind of a tough question for me, really, because what do we mean when we say the church? Probably you mean like your ministry or your... Because even if I think of like what an idol is, typically, where it's something that we're elevating above God in our life, but why are you coming to church? You're coming to church to worship God. Mm-hmm. And so there must be some sort of a way... I mean, for one, there are some ways in which I think we're true believers can be... Worshiping idols, like uh, you know, Calvin says that the heart is an idol factory, and we as believers need to be aware of idols that exist in our lives so that we may mortify that and put that to death. But I would be, I, I'm having a hard way trying to understand at least how a someone who's actually a true believer would have the church as an idol, because then there is like this ministry is this thing, so it's about them rather than it is even about worshiping God. But I, yeah, I don't, that's a, it's an interesting question. I'm assuming, mean, like, I would agree with what John said, that anything could be an idol. Anything could take that place, that sense of fulfillment um, that God is supposed to have. But the church being an idol is a really weird one. I can't really think of a way in which that would actually play out, I guess, you know? I guess maybe if somebody came, I don't know if they came and they were trying to, <laughs> I can't hear a, you. if someone was trying to, like not really come for the right reasons and they made the actual gathering about 
something that it's not supposed to be about, like what Paul said about yeah. we come you, here to worship God. You have people who I think make an idol out of a ministry within the church. So the church, like this is my ministry. Oh, we're not going to do this ministry anymore. Well, then I'm done. Like they have that sort of mentality mm-hmm. about that ministry. But that's different than the whole church because that seems weird to me. And the church is the people. It's not nearly necessarily the building. But this must mean, when someone says, can the church be an idol, they must mean what the ministry of the church is doing for them. They can't be talking about, I mean, maybe they could be talking about all the people group. And so then it's like just the, they like the, the fellowship, the friendship, and they don't really care about Christ. I can I, see I a scenario that's playing out. It probably wasn't in the mind of the person who asked the question. But if someone was in a church that was not biblically sound, and they began to see things that were wrong with the church, but they valued the community of the church so much that they refused to deal with it because they had exalted that connection with those, those particular people more than they value their obedience to the Lord. I can see how that could kind of be an idol to them. But again, when we talk about the church, typically I like to think about it in the terms of the true church. Like the true church is going to keep you from making it into an idol. It's constantly battling against you idolatizing it because it's teaching you the truth about idolatry and teaching you that the only object of our worship should be the triune God. So it is a tricky one. Um, I think when we struggle with idolatry such as pride, then the church can be an avenue through which that sin can come to the forefront. We can see a person's pride played out within the context of the church, sometimes trying to be all things to all people, or gain the like the uh, approval of all their brothers and sisters in the church. You see that in uh, pastors too. Like, look how many people I had. How many people we baptized. That, but again, that's I think that's idolizing the ministry of the church rather mm-hmm. than church itself. The church itself is. I'm sure there could be a way. It's just hard mm-hmm. for me to see it. Well, like that's why I say it's the called out ones, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to make that an idol. Uh, but there are people who. I know and have good friends that make idols out of particular churches without naming those churches. I think there's some good churches, but usually it's the pastor or the ministry that's going on there where they exalt one church above another and it can end up being idolatrous. It's like man worship. We even call certain people who go to certain churches ites at the end, right? Because they are following after the teaching of, of an individual or another. And it happens with charismatic, gifted men that God is called into ministry. But you have to be careful of that because those men need Christ also. Question, Darlene? Uh, yeah. Uh, I've always believed that you do or you do anything in way excess. Or you go way overboard on anything that could become an idol. Is that true? Right? Or what? Anything. That's kind of tricky. Um, That's what I've been taught. Because we're made to love the Lord, to exalt Him. So it's kind of hard to imagine doing that too much. I guess you could put so much emphasis on worshiping the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. That you might ignore other responsibilities that God has put into your life. But in that, that case, if you're ignoring your family or you're ignoring other charges that God has given to you, then you're not really loving the Lord because you're not obeying him in, in right. doing what he calls you to do. So, um, But it, it's a little difference, I think, between idolatry and gluttony. Gluttony sometimes uh, doesn't get spoken about in churches in our day, but gluttony is 
looking to a certain thing for satisfaction beyond what it was intended to provide for you and becoming obsessed with that thing. Um, so there's some similarities between that and idolatry, but they're not always a one-for-one. One. I would agree. I think going back to what Paul was saying, it's impossible to make <clears throat> true church, true gathering an, an idol, right? I mean, if, if you're, you're a going, believer. If you're, yeah, if you're a believer, right. then you're coming to church for Christ. It's impossible right. to make an idol out of worshiping God. Um, you can't do that because it's the first command in Scripture, right? Well, the I mean, definition of idolatry is, you know, worshiping something other in the way God. God should be worshipped. Yes. If you're worshiping God, then you can't really worship God in a way that only God should be worshipped. It doesn't yes. make a lot of sense. Anything other than God and or worship, be, yeah. yes, can Anything be made an idol. Than God, yeah. Yeah. Brandon? So... Would it be considered, a, I guess, idolatry if, I guess, a church did a I Love My Church series? Or they do, like, a whole movie about you know, all the people that testify about how great their church is and how much they love it? Is that, like, a form of idolatry? Or can we actually talk about how much we do enjoy our church and put it on the screen for all to see? <laughs> I, I mean, potentially, sure. Because, in one sense... Christ, you know, loved the church so much that he died for the church, right? And so it's one thing to love the church. We should all love the church, for the Lord Jesus himself loves the church. And if we love Christ, we would love, you know, the bride of Christ as well. We can't divorce the two. But along the lines of what Nick was saying earlier, where that, where if, you're, if you love your church simply because it's your church and you really like, you know, the, the way you feel when you're there because of the music and, and the community, and but you understand that the church is, you know, teaching something that's wrong and you don't do anything about it because you love the community and you love the, you know, the music, what it makes you feel and the pastor is always, you know, telling you how great you are, um, then that, then it's an idol in that sense. And unfortunately, I guess I would say, or what I've seen is the types of churches that do was I love my churches and the videos and the testimonies tend to be those kind of churches that are kind of shallow and they're all about the church experience and the community that you have rather than being centered upon Christ and his counsel and his word. So it's tough. And we don't get any impression, I think, from scripture that the way that we're to love our church is by making essentially commercials about our church. Like the way you love your church is to practice the one another commands of scripture, you know, so we pray for one another and we endure with one another and we lift each other up in encouragement, and we meet each other's needs, and we do those kinds of things. And so I think when people try to get like novel and create like new ways to hype up the church, it's usually a marketing kind of thing. It is. It and is. it's not really sincerely trying to build the love for the saints because the, the Bible's already taught us how to do that, right? And it's, it's not by marketing. It's by real life, living in faith, walking in step with Christ together. Yeah. If it's like a my church is better than your church thing, that's weird, right? That's that's like that. Would I? Think you ever been on a church softball team league though? Uh, no. Yeah, there's a lot of smash talk going on <laughs> with church softball and church basketball. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like but, don't don't. Yeah, it's sports to anything though, right? And <laughs> well, compass gets off a little bit. Yeah. Fred, yeah. try saying it loud so we can get it on the recording. Yeah, I know. Greg was trying to get in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, I mean, that's an interesting question. But I mean, I guess church can also be. I mean, whatever, whatever church, but like some of the churches in, uh, in, in Revelation that Jesus sent the letter to, uh, 
you know, you, you lost your first Thinking of Ephesians. Uh, you were lukewarm. So these people were playing Lapsus. church, yeah, yeah. and uh, they were doing it because they were very uh, respected in the community, but, but it wasn't about Christ. It was about, you know, being honored uh, among the community for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that, I think that happens, I'm sure it happens with a lot of churches today. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, a church that takes its focus off of Christ can give you the appearance of health in a lot of ways, but if Jesus is not at the center of what you're doing, then eventually I think that unhealthiness is going to come out. You're going to start to see that in some of the ways that the church is straying away from the true gospel or the commands that God has given to us on how the church is supposed to actually function. This church is for Christ. It's for his glory, for his exaltation, and we happen to enjoy it because that's the best thing we can do is draw near to Christ, but it's really for his glory. So when he becomes secondary... A whole slew of problems can follow after that. Greg, you had something? Yeah, I was just, you know, we got some of these mega churches that go on. A lot of people, maybe this is off a little bit, but they're attending because of that that larger than life pastor that's standing up there. And they're not really going, they're more going to be, like, I get caught up, John MacArthur's my man, right? So I get caught up in. <clears throat> Sometimes when I go down there to see my daughter, I'm like, I want to go see John MacArthur instead of going to church, right, to worship with the, the group down there. So do you think that has something to do with it as well when you see some of these massive churches that's more pastor worship idolizing? Well, look at Martin Lloyd-Jones. <clears throat> if you see the logic on fire, his whole church went by the wayside after he died, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think... And that happened to me uh, about 10 years ago. I had the same experience. We went to go see MacArthur, and I was angry because there was some fill-in, and I was like, we're going to go down to this other church now. My wife was like, well, why? And I said, well, MacArthur's not here. She said, oh, that's why we go to church. And it was a real, like, bring me back down to reality moment where I stopped and realized that I wasn't just making an idol. I had already made an idol, you know, for a long time. And it was really sobering. And so um, I think we do need to hear men make mistakes in the pulpit um, when they're teaching because it, it shows us the truth about them, right? And we get an echo of that in the first three chapters of First Corinthians where there was some division in Corinth because people were picking their favorite leader and sort of like ignoring the other apostles that didn't quite jive with them or that, that they didn't naturally connect to. And the Apostle Paul just puts the kibosh on that and makes it clear that it's really about Christ. It's not about any of these particular leaders. It's about uh, the God that they are trying to exalt. So, you know, I think that as leaders, we've got to be careful to look out for that and not to feed that natural ego that is present in the sinful heart of man uh, and, and to encourage our people to not put us up on pedestals, but to recognize that we are just regular people just like them, seeking after the Lord, and that Christ is the ultimate goal. Yeah, you know, I'll, I, I'll share just a quick story. When I, used to, when I was in Milpitas, the church we belonged to, the Pentecostal Spanish church, but uh, I think John hit it on, on the head, I mean, because I, I remember, uh, you know, a lot of times when, when we used to go to Golden Hills, and if Pastor Larry wasn't there, and people knew because he was on vacation, you'd see like a 25% drop in, in attendance. But um, at our old church in Milpitas, where I actually re-came to the Lord, uh, this back in my early 30s, 
Uh, but um, the pastor had an affair with the associate pastor's wife. And right in front of the congregation, it, it was really a growing church. I loved going there. And uh, he stood up in front of the pulpit and said, you know what? He goes, kind of blamed the woman, you know, uh, and, uh, and said, you know what? He goes, I'm going to start my own church because they voted me out. And whoever wants to uh, basically follow me, come with me. And we lost half of the church. Just a lot of people. Because he was very charismatic, he, you know. Uh, but the thing was, is I, I was just shocked. You know, it, it, you know, and eventually the church only hung on for another you know, five, six years. Yeah, you can't really pin that on one problem. I think there's probably a number of systemic problems that are leading to a culture where that kind of thing can happen. And uh, part and parcel, I think many churches in America just don't know how to handle church discipline properly. And I think it's such an important element of a healthy church is recognizing that Matthew 18 and scriptures that are corollary to that are really important to helping us to keep the church holy place and to confront sin amongst us in a loving and truthful way. And when churches are not equipped to do that and are not practicing it in a regular and consistent way, then when a scandal breaks out, they don't know how to handle themselves and people just, they act completely out of character. Um, So that's a real tragedy. I hate to see that happen. Hopefully those who truly love the Lord soldiered on and found themselves in churches where there was a healthier foundation for them to stand upon and that was really pursuing Christ. No. Our second question tonight um, is has to do with an interpretation of a per- particular part of Scripture. Um, often when we do these Q&As, someone will say, well, what about this particular Scripture? What does it mean? How are we supposed to understand it or apply it? And so uh, this question uh, suggested that there are some who say Satan is not mentioned in the book of Job explicitly. So how do you refute that idea that perhaps this... Um, this accuser in the book of Job is not Satan, is, is not the devil that we're accustomed to thinking about, the serpent in the garden, that serpent of old mentioned in Revelation. So how do we, how do we refute those kinds of, of claims or accusations? Wait, it says, can you repeat, it says Satan wasn't mentioned in the book of Job? Yeah, so this is a view that's put forward. This is... It's a new. I know. So it's this is a view put forward by a guy named Michael Heisler. Uh, you, the unseen realm, is where he talks about yeah, it. Yeah. And so Heisler's whole thing is that he wants to establish that there's something called divine counsel, and uh, this divine counsel is angelic beings, not equal to God, but what human humans might have considered to be gods. Which we understand some of that is acceptable, like like people worshiping what they call gods were actually demons. So some of that is acceptable and fine. But Heisler's, I don't think Heisler's a very trustworthy guide for one. It's, it's Heisler. This is Heisler's view. If you come across somebody saying this, it's novel. It's a, yeah. you go all the way back throughout church history, everyone has always believed in Satan. In, in, in the um, Hebrew, it's Hasatan. So there's an article. So the reason why Heisler is able to do this is because it's Hasatan. There's an article in front of the name Satan. And would you read 127 or something like that? Or 113? I, I just scanned myself. It's in chapter 2. Chapter, so it's in like. Yeah, it's, it's in, also in 1.6. Yeah. See, it's right there in the beginning. It's yeah. So. so it, it, there's an article in front of Satan. And so his, he wants to make the case that you don't see that 
with Satan, but that's, that's an argument really from, science, from silence. It's not a real substantial argument, and everyone throughout the whole church has always, that I know, every, I mean, it's the popular position. Everyone has seen that as Satan. He's accusing Job, which is what he does. He's the accuser of the brethren. And so it's, to me, I mean, I, I would, if someone said that, I would suggest maybe looking into other guides to what the Bible says, because Heisler also rejects um, a substitutionary atonement. Uh, he, he, he's got a lot of interesting beliefs that I don't think he's you know, worth reading for. Uh, he's a scholar. He's smart. Um, he, he absolutely puts a lot of time into yeah. his writings. But at the same time, when, when somebody's building a niche for themselves theologically... They become super invested in the idea, even if the idea is wrong. Like, that's how he's getting all his attention. So he's personally invested in that not being refuted. So he's going to continue to drive home that point and try to get people thinking and talking about that thing. Yeah. I, I think linguistically you can even make the argument, Paul, that Hasatan, when it says the accuser, it points even more firmly at the accuser that everyone would think of when we think of an accuser. It's not just any accuser. It's the accuser, Satan, the one who has been accusing us from the, since the garden. So I think even linguistically, his argument is weak in that regard. And we, we would do well. I mean, think about it in Revelation when it talks about that serpent of old. It's saying the serpent that we all know about. We're talking about Satan there. We're talking about the devil. So, uh, yeah, it's... What, is he, what does he gain from saying it's not Satan, too? Which is interesting to me. What is the point of that? And I think that goes back to his whole desire to establish this divine council, which is another, this is a different topic than what we're talking about here, but he wants to see that back in um, Genesis 1, and he wants to carry that out throughout other portions of scripture as well. But it's, what do you really, what's the purpose of saying it's not Satan? I don't know. Well, he uses to um, the adversary, like he said, the the um, the Hasatan, when he uses that, he's trying to go from what he calls biblical theology, and he's trying to say that I'm doing biblical theology. He's really big on ancient Near East, and he tries to say you can't really have solid hermeneutics, solid exegesis if you don't have A&E. And the problem with that is, like Paul was saying, it's like throughout church history, we've all known this to be Satan. So when you look at the word hasatan, it can also mean adversary, right? And how many times does the New Testament tell us what ad, who the adversary is, right? When we're looking back into the Old Testament. So for someone like him, my pushback has always been, well, you must not believe in progressive revelation because obviously... <laughs> We have a fuller understanding of the Bible because we have the New Testament, because the Holy Spirit has used not only the prophets, but the apostles. And so when you join together that we have systematic theology, but obviously without, without progressive revelation, how would we really have a good biblical theology? Because we can look back at the A&E and we can do all of that and still miss a lot of the interpretation that we should have if, if we don't look at the whole picture. It's a weird take, because no matter what we say, it's obviously, if it, let's say it's not Lucifer, Satan, it's just some, then it's some other angel or demon that's being used to harass and torment. It's an evil angel, a fallen angel. And so why do we, 
need apologists for Satan? Like, why are we trying to get him off the hook? Anyway, it's like, wow. it's like being an apologist for Hitler or something. Yeah. Like, why, why do you need... <laughs> that wasn't Satan. That was somebody else. Like, well... Well, he does the same thing with Isaiah 14. With the weird. five eyes, I will ascend above the heights of the yeah. clouds. He does the same thing with Ezekiel 12 about, you know, how he was in the Garden of Eden. So... It's just strange. Like that's that's a good one. Like why why do we need apologies for Satan? Right? The good thing about Heisler, which I'll say maybe a, was something that we could be thankful for his contributions to theology and and the church, is that he, the church probably at large tends to minimize the spiritual realm and, and the spiritual war that we're in. And Heisler, he he's like he's the other option of uh, the other you know pendulum swing. But like where he's way into it. And he's overstating his case in some ways, this being one of them. Yeah, one of the things that John mentioned earlier was A&E, which stands for Ancient Near Eastern Studies, which is trying to understand the Bible in a historical context of the other cultures that were going on around it. So learning some of the history that goes alongside the Bible uh, can be useful to us. It helps us to understand a little better, like, for instance, when we're trying to understand the terms of the covenants that God strikes with people, that A&E can sometimes bring some light to how those covenants were taken by the people of the time. But anytime you try to take extra biblical help and kind of elevate it to the point where it's carrying just as much weight as the Bible itself, you're putting yourself in danger. So I would just always be a little bit cautious. If somebody's making a lot of arguments and then they're staking their claims on evidence that's A and E evidence instead of scriptural evidence, just got to be, be very cautious there. Don't, don't, uh, don't think that just because they've got all this study under the belt that that makes them no more than you about the scripture and therefore they have a better opinion about things. Let the scripture interpret the scripture for the most part. And if A and E can help in a little ways or shine a little bit extra light or give some context, that's great. But, um, but don't be intimidated if you don't know a whole bunch of A&E or if you've not been doing a whole lot of studies on ancient Egypt, Kadeaforms, and things like this. That doesn't necessarily need to be in your mind to understand the Word of God. It's a, it's a danger for scholars. because It's weird because we live in a culture where I think if you're a Christian, you know you're, you're ostracized. And so if, you, if you're smart and you have degrees and you want to talk to these other people who are smart and have degrees as well too, you almost, you see these guys capitulating to the culture. And it happens in the Reformed community as well. Um, you'll hear even Reformed folks talk sometimes about how the covenant system is based off of A&E, like the vassals uh, and situation that they have with people over them. And, and so they say that God used that then because that was what the cultures were already using. Well... No, perhaps God instituted that so that people would be aware of it. We don't have to. What they, what people end up doing, what Nick's saying is, people look to they they take the ancient Near Eastern context and they use that as a filter to look at what the Bible says, rather than look using the Bible as your primary source. Right. Which and again, so and we want to read scholars. We want to encourage that, but uh, you should be aware of it. You know, it's it's out there. Yeah, and ancient Near East is it is it's relevant. Yes, yeah, yeah. relevant. Right. It's yeah. the context, but yeah. I think. You remove the work of the Holy Spirit when you act like if I don't know A and E, I don't can interpret Scripture. And the danger of that is you're taking the last two thousand years of church history and you're saying the church has had it wrong. Now the church needs to get it right. And I'm I pump the brakes when I hear people saying stuff like that. I'm assuming this was a question from one of our deacons who's not here tonight because he asked a few months ago about this in a in a group chat. And so that's why I understand it's Heisler. Who's doing this? But 
Thank you, Jeff, if you listen to this. <laughs> All right, any other questions about that before we move on? The next question um, has to do with the matter uh, of great social import. A lot of folks think about these things because it's one of those aspects of the Christian community that is becoming more and more of a contrast to the world around it. And so uh, the person who asked this question says, on the subject of wives being submissive, can it be explained that the husband is submissive and led by Christ and the wife is submissive led by the husband, showing that it is not a tyrannical relationship, but a loving relationship pointing to Christ? Yes. <laughs> Isn't that Ephesians? Isn't that the exact argument that yeah. is made in five? I think it's also laid down in part in First Corinthians 11 in the section on head coverings and headship. So you're talking about the idea that, that when we look at the scripture that tells wives to submit to their husbands, they're not the only ones having to submit to anything. And it's not like submission is just the exclusive responsibility of, of women in the culture, but that we all as Christians are to submit to our Heavenly Father, to the Lordship of the Lord, His mighty authority over us. Um, I think maybe what I would caution against a little bit is it almost makes it sound like submission is only a good thing if we all have to do it, though. When in reality, it's a good thing as long as it's a good thing. And and God will sometimes assign different roles and responsibilities to different people groups, sort of to different genders. And the uniqueness of those roles and responsibilities aren't something that we have to look at as divisive or as uh, setting up some kind of a hierarchy of value. Rather, what we should try to understand is if God commands a thing, it's a good thing. And so um, when it comes to understanding submission, what greater example of submission do we have to follow than Jesus Christ himself who humbled himself and took on flesh and lived under the law and was in all ways submissive to the Father when he walked on earth in, in his human nature. It's, 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 it's impossible to think of submission as being universally bad and only the weak have to submit when you think about Christ, the most powerful of kings, willingly submitting and humbling himself before others. So I think that changes the way that we look at submission itself if we really see that Christ shows us submission is strength at times, if it is done properly, if it's done according to the commands of a God who is always good. I just want to guard against some of the extremes, it seems, that are in this question. Um, as sinful men, we can abuse submission. That's a fact. Um, and we often do sometimes. Um, I think that, but it doesn't take away the sting that a woman has, that she has an authority in her home, and that's her husband. I think that, it, like Nick was saying, it's an enormous responsibility to have to lead someone, especially not only your wife, but your family, and to use it in a very proud way to weaponize our authority in the homes is strictly forbidden in Scripture. We're called to give our lives for our wives as Christ died for his church. So it's something that is a responsibility that we should see is very weighty and too much for us to ever bear without the grace of God. But we do live in an age of feminism, and we have all been born into an age of feminism. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We're all weak. Uh, we need the Lord. But we live in an age of very weak men 
who will not stand forward and do what's right, who won't lead their families, who often blame their wives, um, and then when their wives do sin in some area, there's no forgiveness. It's just, I'm going to get you, you know, I'm going to exercise this authority I have over you. And all those are wrong. I think that men need to be dependent upon the Lord to lead their wives. Men need to be very long-suffering, forgiving, patient, loving, and kind. But men also do need to sometimes say, this is the direction we're going to go in. And when we don't do that, we're not, we're setting our wives up. And I think women do need to see a good picture of a man who's willing to stand up and say, this is what I believe the Lord wants for us. So it's it's very difficult, but um, one bad leadership does not remove a wife's command to submit, nor a husband's responsibility to love and lead. So uh, I was just reading an Elizabeth Elliot book, and she's talking about submission and everything too. So it made me think of I she she didn't say this, but like a boyfriend is not submissive over a girlfriend. Like it's a covenant marriage thing. So it's through that, and then. Um, before a woman is married, like she's submissive to her dad. And then, but in the case of people who don't have that, she talked about like elders in the church, male elders in the church are her spiritual, she's spiritually submissive to them. Do you agree with what she said there? Like, oh, church matters, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, even if she is married. There's a level of submission to the elders, which is different than her submission to her husband. Um, but it, and the whole aspect of submission, it, it's again, it's, we look at it as this, this bad thing, like Nick was saying earlier, but it's a loving thing. Because uh, we're all told to submit yourself unto the Lord. And that's a joy for us who love the Lord. And Ephesians 5 tells he says the wife is supposed to submit herself to the husband as to the Lord. So it's a, it's a loving thing. It's not a, a bad thing. But certainly... I was glad you said that unmarried daughter is their dad, because that's the covenant head in that Amen. situation. And at church, you enter into a covenant as well. And elders have, I, we could go into those verses where it talks about elders have to give an account. Uh, you know, they obey elders, for they, um, with joy, you know, because we have to give an account for right. how it is that we shepherded and ministered. So those things all all... Absolutely, but, but they culminate in love. It's it's not a it's not like a the question even said not as a tyrannical thing. It's not about a tyranny thing. That's an abuse of it, yeah. and uh, we we would call that out if we saw it. And we also have to be careful because when you live in a culture where uh, many sinful things are called good things, and you hear that all the time, then just the bombardment of this general consensus in the culture. That women should fight for their rights and demand that they have just as much authority in their households as their husbands. When you hear that so constantly, it almost becomes like those sins seem like noble sins in our society. It reminds me of uh, Romans chapter 1 where it says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, it just listed a whole bunch of sinful activities. Though they practice such things, they deserve to die. Not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So we live in a society where right now that's one of those sins that has been almost exalted as a virtue is this stubbornness to not be willing to submit to anyone. This 
autonomy that does not respect the order that God has given to us. And so you have to take extra care to really help to bring people along in understanding that and to identify the fact that just because our culture says this is what every woman should value and exalt, and you know, this freedom is something we should all fight for, and if you don't, then you're a betrayer of women. We can't just accept that just because it's popular today. We've got to go back to the Word of God Amen. and let Christ tell us that His order is better than anything that our most advanced cultures can come up with. And so uh, it's, it's a tough battle, and it's a delicate one. We do have to speak the truth and love on this one. We have to be willing to, to listen and, and, and strive with people who don't see it the way that the Scripture says it. But we cannot abandon this position because if we do, we do it to the destruction of the women that we are called to care for and to look after. So to lead is hard, but it is one of those things that God has said, with my help and power, you can lead. And uh, we need to take hold of these responsibilities and, and walk in them in a way that glorifies the Lord. Change the situation, but now it's on um, the uh, husband and wife, but it's on um, child discipline. For the most passionate, they want to raise their kids, but they have different opposing views on how to raise their children up. What does the Lord say? Huh? Well, what does the Lord say about, you know, raising up your children? I mean, I have four boys. I mean, if if I listen to something other than what God has said, then how am I going to raise <clears throat> my four boys? I mean, where should we start is what I'm asking. You're saying if both husband and wife have a valid biblical view? Yeah, I mean, it's in wisdom because, you know, where does it explicitly express, like, oh, when this happens... You do this action. So it's based off of wisdom. But they're like, okay, on this area, yeah, I don't really agree. I don't think we should do that. But husband says, no, we should do it in this situation. Is the wife supposed to be like, well, it's not a primary doctrine, so I have to submit? Or can they, can't she say, well, no, I'm going to disagree with that. I'm not going to submit to that and do it her own way. You started off talking about, you said discipline? Well, child, like how to discipline your children. Obviously, right. we all know both husband and wife agree we should discipline our kids. But how to do it, they disagree on that. So is the wife supposed to what, just... There's only one way to do it. When you're, when my child is out of line, I, I need to get a rod, and I need to correct them with the rod. Is there another way the Bible tells us to do that? I'm, I'm confused. Well, if you look at like a lot of uh, modern child um, raising, it's a lot of like soft parenting. You should talk to your kid. It's, they're kind of modern uh, parenting, from what I understand. It's not really... Using the rod, they said, like, not really nice. So it's a lot of, I guess, soft parenting, I guess I would call it. Where they well, you should the talk to your like kid, right? Really, it shouldn't be used. Like, it's really frowned upon if you spank your children. We call it gentle parenting. Yeah. yeah. But that's like gentle parenting is like no discipline, right? Yeah. It's like let the kid run amok almost. <laughs> it's terrifying. I, uh, I think that you could have a husband and wife. You guys are both adults. You come together. You discuss it. You talk it out. Maybe there's a little bit of compromise each way. But you're a team together in this, right? And you want to be unified in it. And so even if you're bringing the rod, I mean, it might also, bringing the rod might also mean, you know, no, if you're older, you're, you're, you lost the car. You, you're grounded. You're not going out of the house. No more phone for you. Yeah, the, the, it, could, it could contain other things as well, too. It just depends on the age and the specific issue that's before you. Uh, we don't want to shy away from the rod. But also, you know, using the rod is not a license to just use your utmost strength to utterly destroy your kid, right? It's corrective discipline because you love them. You're not meaning to have them injured. You're not meaning to have CPS come to your house. Because right? we live in a state that is psychos. 
I can say from experience um, <clears throat> that a lot of parents um, that I know and I'm close to, even my wife has had really traumatic experiences with with child discipline, right? But that doesn't really give you an excuse to not. That's not biblical discipline, though. Yes, it's not biblical discipline. That's a good point. And so you can't miscategorize it, or you may have someone who is tentative. You know, I saw a lot of unbiblical discipline growing up in, you know, with a lot of my cousins because my uncles were military and they would abuse my cousins like really harshly. So I think that that extreme doesn't paint a good picture of what good biblical discipline is. And we're sinners. We're going to not do it right all the time. But God says that he who spares his rod hates his son. So there are some of my children that I know I've spared the rod with that I, if I could do it over, <laughs> I would not have spared the rod with. And there are some of my children that I know that they've got a good healthy dose of the rod and the Lord has used that, you know, to help them walk in a certain way. We spent a lot of time on this question, right? Is that kind of, you, you, sometimes you give your kid grace too, you know, you don't have to always give them the rod every single time, but because every, and when we do bring the rod, it's always accompanied by word as well, right? We're not doing it in anger. We're sitting down, we're explaining to them why this is bad and why we have to, why we do this out of Mm -hmm. love. So it's, um, <laughs> you you so anyway back to submission. Talk with your wife about yeah. it. That you guys should be together. Mm-hmm. Do we have time for one more question? Seven thirty-six. I know we're supposed well, to be. I'm confused. Well, that's normal. We don't have any like <laughs> we don't have any softball questions <laughs> off the on the list anymore. We so. can talk after. You want to try to get tackled at least some of this one. This is a really good one right here. We can get started because there's a two-part on that one. So it's got a whole other section on the second second sheet. It might be better to do that all next time. But, well, um, we have a lot of questions. So if we could do one more right now, we would. Right, Are it. you guys okay with one more? Ten-minute time? Okay. All right. So the next question is, can meticulous sovereignty, i.e. what is taught by R.C. Sproul, and free will coexist at the same time? And a couple of support scriptures that were... Um, offered up in that question to give it some context. Genesis 2, 16 through 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 3, 2 through 3, which says essentially the same thing repeated by the woman to the serpent. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die, except for in that second one. Eve added a little extra to it. So uh, she said, you can't touch the, the tree, but that's not really what the Lord said. So there we seem to have an example of God giving a choice to Adam and Eve, uh, a sense of free will. So how do, does the, the sovereignty of God, if it extends to all things, how does that coexist with the free agency of man, free will of man to make decisions in the real world? Me? Okay, so uh, I, I'd say yes. So to answer the question in the most basic way, can meticulous sovereignty, which in, I understand that to just mean that God is completely in control. Like there's nothing that happens outside of God's decree and His um, His wisdom, His will. 
And so, and free will coexists at the same time. And I would say yes, but the problem that we encounter right away is that we have a broken understanding of what free will is and what people have meant by free will in the past and what we understand as free will, especially today. Because when we think of, when people mention, I have a free will today, what they mean by that is like a libertarian free will, which they're able to just do whatever they want at any point outside of any assistance of God. And so that we would say, no, that's, that's bad human philosophy and cunning that's like tossing people aside like uh, waves, like uh, Paul says in Ephesians. Um, but to say that man has a free will, theologically speaking, what the church has reformed, I believe, for a long time, is that mankind has the freedom to operate within his nature. Um, what is coordinator. So if a person is fallen in, um, you know, they're a, a rebel to God, they hate God, right? Romans 8 says that for all who don't have the spirit of Christ, or for all who have the spirit of Christ, belong to Christ. So therefore, if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ, and you're at enmity with God. Like, they, um, they're not seeking to do anything pleasing to God. But that's not even really what the question is about, but I feel like it's related to it. When we understand how God's sovereignty works with our will, with our volition, we understand that it operates within causal spaces. And so God is the first cause. And we operate with our own choices that operate according to our nature as a second cause. But God's will is always being done. We, we see it, and we do it freely. Like, no one is... God isn't coercing anybody. Like, people do what they want, and in a way that is somewhat mysterious to us, God's will is still being accomplished because of his eternal and wise decree. And so, like, the easiest place to think of it and to see it is either in Isaiah, Isaiah 9 or in Acts 2, where, you know, Peter is preaching, and he says that you wicked men delivered up Jesus according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Mm-hmm. So... They did it, and they're guilty and culpable for it, Amen. but it happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Amen. So, so yes, they operate with each other. It doesn't mean that we have a, a fake free will. We do have a free will. And even the, the, the verses that are interesting um, that were cited in Genesis are especially interesting. We've talked about this through the Catechism series about man's ability with his volition and will in the what we call the fourfold state of man. And so Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, they're able, they could freely choose to obey or disobey because they, they were not dead in sin. They were in a relationship with God in which they were in a covenant with God and they had the option to sin or not sin. Then sin enters in, they chose to sin. And from that moment on, they're no longer able to freely choose to please God Except God, like, right away saves Adam and Eve, I think. They're, re- they're redeemed right away. Um, the promise of the sacrifice of Christ and the shedding of the, the animal skin to make God a covering for them. Yeah, and so, so, so they're then in a... But people who are not saved are not free to please God because they're, they're an enemy to God. They hate God. And then once you are saved, you're back in that same condition as Adam and Eve were. Like Christians today, we're able to choose to sin or choose not to sin. And then when we are in heaven, when we're in our glorified state, we're not able to sin anymore. So we can no longer choose, even though we're more said to be more free, which we are more free. Right. Because choosing to 
sin is submitting yourself to slavery to sin. It's not really like a free will. Your will is enslaved to sin. And so I'd recommend Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will, which is fantastic on this conversation. But yes, they exist together. And you have to understand that our, as creatures, depending on if we're saved or not, our will is, is different. Our nature is different. I don't know if that helps, Greg. Okay. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> okay. So I, I heard Nathan is, when he was preaching today, right? He had made the comment that Christ was not Plan B, right? And I've heard that before. So if Christ was not Plan B, how did Adam and Eve have a choice? He was going. He was. I mean, so I'm a harder determinist than anything else, and I fully believe that that was. Of God that they were going to. They didn't have a choice. It's like almost like saying Judas had a Judas did not have a choice. He was going to turn Christ in, right? So when I look at Christ, he would do what he was supposed to do for us, that was already planned in advance. That couldn't have been, well, maybe they don't, because my old pastor would say, Well, you know, if Adam and Eve didn't sin, we you know, we'd all be living in glory. And you can think about that philosophically, but when you think about what we've been taught about the nature of God, that he is sovereign over all things, right, he knew it and he put it into motion. So there's a sense in which the fortunate fall happened because God knew the outcome. He knew the tribulation and trial it would bring. He knew how much it would hurt and how much shame it would bring to humanity. He knew what it would cost to redeem his people for himself. And yet, counting all of those things, it was his plan to, to display to us his glory, and to bring a people to himself that would be blessed and benefited by being a part of his grace and his redemption. And I think uh, Pastor Paul... I book had a poem with ridiculous sovereignty um, that if God is like an R.C. Sproul's quote about if there's one molecule or one atom that's in rebellion and it's not, where it's not under God's control, then there is no God. God does not exist. Because God controls everything according to the particular uh, sovereignty. Amen. So if that's true, then you know, you give an example, then he would God would be in the mind of Hitler while he was planning to murder millions of Jews. He'd be in that planning process. If he's controlled everything, he's in control of Hitler's mind and he was doing that. You know, that's, that's I wanted to defend what you were saying. Okay. I just wanted to back up for a minute. So Pastor Paul most definitely agree, believes that the decree, that the fall was the decree of God. Um, I think what you're doing um, in understanding this, Greg, so did God give Adam a command, right? He did, right? And so there's there's always two sides of the coin when we're talking about this discussion, right? There's the human perspective, which is very... Limited in scope, right? We could put on binoculars, but we're still only going to be able to see so far out. But God is limitless, right? So when we talk about that, we're talking about two different conversations. There's the way we see things, and there's the way God sees things. So, so when we're talking about, did God give Adam a command? So from a human perspective, there's always going to be, well, you either obey the command or you disobey the command. But now when we go into the realm of the secret will of God, the secret things of the, of the Lord, we're talking about the secret wise counsel of God that was in eternity. Yes, that was decreed 
from that perspective, could it be reversed? No, the Bible says that I will, you know, cause it and who will reverse it is what the proverb says. So, Dale, um, I do not believe um, in any sense that R.C. Sproul is wrong uh, because he's right in the sense that when he says if there's one atom, if there's one molecule outside of the realm or the scope of God, then when you get to the Hitler, you were talking about back what Pastor Paul was communicating. There's primary cause, the first cause, that would be God, the ultimate cause. And then there's secondary causes, right? That would be man and what he's did. He just gave you an example from Acts chapter 2. And then there's sometimes people get the direct cause mixed up. The direct cause would be the second secondary cause. So if I go outside and someone slashed my tires and I drop a bunch of bad words, obviously I sinned, right? I, I could have not said those words, right? Well, because ultimate cause... Well, what do you mean by God is responsible? Can you define that? Well, if I have all control over somebody else and I do something bad to them, it's because I have all this control over them. Are you saying that God is a sinner? That will make God a sinner? No. So, well, well, ultimately, that's where it goes, though, yeah, right? I mean, yeah, because I don't believe that. I don't believe that there's a particular song. Well, I'm, but see, here's where I'm trying to get you to answer this. So, there's two different types. When you say, is God responsible? You said, no, God is not a sinner. He's not responsible in that sense. In other words, God is not culpable. He's not going to go stand before a court and they're going to find God guilty, right? Because we know the Bible says there's no counsel that's greater than God. But on the, on the sense of God being the ultimate and the primary cause of sin, then we have to take Acts chapter 2. Pastor Paul said, by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, that Christ was murdered at the hands of wicked men. So how would you explain that to us, brother? Uh, I would say, well, by free will, these men do that. So, okay. So I see where you're coming from. Um, One thing that we, what I liked what you were saying about the the view from God and the view from man. One thing that we would say is that when we say, we talk about free will and God's decree, right? Ephesians 1.11, that God works all, so this is the the issue. We have to make sense of what all of the Bible says in light of the actions that happen. And so when we read something in Ephesians 1.11 that says that God does all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. Or Psalm 115.3, God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. How do we keep that truth in place? Because then if we we give that up. He pleases to give us free will. Well, well, then But that's not what the Bible actually says, right? The Bible doesn't say. Well, go ahead. I was, I'll just no. I'll just finish it up. Sure. Besides the, the the free will, that free will enables us to love Him. If we don't have free will to love well, I, yeah. Him, then well, we don't have free. Doing, you know? Well, we don't have free will to love God. So, that's, so we have to be made will. I was just I said this in one of the other questions actually that we are made willing. To love God. So God's decree is, as John's point, mysterious. It's from creation even happened. Everything happens according to the counsel of his will. Everything that happens, happens because of God's decree. If Think of it if it's not. That means God doesn't know the future. We have, if, right. if that's gone, then God doesn't know if Dale, if anybody's who's going to be saved. Um, the Father is giving well, no, you to my hands. I think he knows the future. I think he knows from the hands, from the beginning. 
Well, why? Because he's decreed everything. Well, Dale, let me, so, let me just read you what he's saying. I feel like he's limited because, and I know this is the, this is the debate, he right? He limits himself by giving us free will. Why? Because God is love. And if you don't, you can't freely give love. I got to jump in here. Hold on, John. I'm going to read the Acts 4 after like a Okay, so yeah. here's where I think we have a fundamental problem is that freedom is not love. And that's something that our society has taught us, but you can scour the words of Scripture. And you're not going to see anywhere where God declares that if there is no freedom, there is no love. My children, when they're babies, have very little freedom, but they are getting loved constantly. Okay? There's a fatherly love that has authority and that does not necessarily value freedom of the child over the well-being of the child. And so what we're trying to do here is we're trying to, with our limited understanding of this grand theology of God's sovereignty, we're trying to judge whether or not God is a good God or a bad God. And by saying and trying to protect God's holiness, by trying to convince ourselves that he didn't cause Hitler's genocide. The second part of the question here is, doesn't meticulous sovereignty make God morally responsible for genocide? Because if he pulls the trigger on every single thing that happens, then God's hands are over everything. So we want to protect God from that guilt. But really what we're doing is we're saying, I... I I'm, going to, I'm willing to unravel the omniscience of God to protect him from sinfulness. I'm willing to unravel the omnipotence of God. Because if you have a free will that you could do what you want and God can't do anything about it, he's not omnipotent. He doesn't have power. Well, you're saying that essentially, though. And when you say that, when you say that God is omniscient... Why does Satan a certain amount of Let's talk about omniscience then. Because omniscience... The knowing of all things, if God pushes go on creation, you cannot get around the fact that he knew it all before it started. So if you're going to protect him from being the first cause of all that's sinful, he can't be omniscient. You've got, you got to erase that divine attribute. God doesn't actually protect himself from that too, right? Because he says, I kill, I make alive, I, I make well-being, I make calamity. Yeah. God owns these things in a way. So when we think of even the Hitler situation, I would... I would comfortably say that yes God decreed that to happen but Hitler freely did it Hitler wanted to do it God wasn't making Hitler do something that he didn't want to do God simply withheld grace we can think of it that way withheld mercy from Hitler to make him do the evil that he wanted to do withholding and controlling well, I want to just well, positive and negative. Well, I just wanted to just jump in and say something. So you said God would limit Himself, right? And that would mean He would give up His control. Well, actually, no. I, I would say He actually He had the ability to give free will to man without Him giving up control. Yeah. 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 But the Jews are not up on the level. It's, it's much more terrible what happened to the Son of God. So when you look at this passage right here in Acts 2, it says, in Acts, I'm sorry, Acts 4, 27, it says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. He specifically names them, right? Were gathered together to do whatever your hand, that's God's hand, and your purpose determined beforehand. Now remember, this is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah when it said that it pleased the Father to crush the Son. Now what, what were the instruments that God used to crush His Son? 
the hands of wicked men, murder, deception. Okay, so if that was the hand of God, that He was pleased, it pleased the Father to crush the Son. Then are we saying that God is a murderer? No, we're not, Dale. What we're saying is. Well, it sounds like that if you say he has total control, if you say man has free will. I'm, no, I'm just reading the scriptures. Because bad men had choices. Well, well, but Dale, I'm just reading you the scriptures, brother. When I read you the scriptures and I say, it pleased the Father to crush the Son, and I ask you what instruments he used, you're going to agree it was murder, lies, and deception. But we know that the hand of God ultimately using the secondary causes of wicked men does not make our God guilty of murder. What it makes him is it makes him God. It makes him sovereign. It makes his decrees come to pass over his creatures. And it makes us dependent upon God and not God you dependent know, upon us. Says, I think it's chapter 2, that where do wars and all these things come from? evil desires within you. From man. Yeah. And uh, John eight forty four, I think it is, that Satan is the one who brings death and destruction. Mm-hmm. I think it's in John 10 as well. He talks about how Satan is responsible. So I would say things like that. I'd say Satan, man, uh, the fallen angels, uh, any other spiritualities, principalities, you know, we talk about in Ephesians, are the cause of evil. What also I says in Amos chapter 3. Do with evil. I think yeah. with us trying to not do evil. I know it's getting late. So. Well, what okay, also no, says in Amos 3 that, that, that if the people... If they hear the trumpet in the city, shall they not be afraid? If there's not evil in the city, has not the Lord done it? So again, we look at that and we say, well, oh, evil involves sin. That means God will be a sinner. He says he creates evil in Isaiah 45, 7, right? So some translations have called it calamity. The word rach and barach mean evil, uh, moral evil. So I think that when we get into this, we have to understand there's only one way to explain it, and that's that God is sovereign, man is not. God's decrees will come to pass. Because his good purposes, like when we think of Romans chapter 8, you know, God, um, everything, all things work together for good to those who are, you know, the called according to his purpose. Can I walk out here and say to my unbelieving friends tonight that all things work together for good in their lives? Well, no. If they don't know Christ, all things do not work together for good. But for a believer, we can say no matter what nakedness or peril or tribulation or sword comes upon us, that the ultimate purpose of God has his hand in on that, and he will bring us through it, even if it's bringing us to glory. Yeah. So it, it's a difficult you know, discussion. Hand, and I'm saying, but I'm, the question was meticulous sovereignty, controlling everything, every element. Well, what, can I what's sovereignty if it's not meticulous? Yeah, exactly. Well, he can be sovereign over it with a certain amount of latitude. He gives man free will to love him, on the one hand, and to hate him, and do what is evil. Who is sovereign when God takes his hand off the wheel? That's what I would like. So it's difficult because in one sense we're talking about to say to love him. That's almost a different conversation. So I feel like that than just the, the bare happenings of the world. Because So that's almost two things. Chris, I know you had something. Um, can I say three things that maybe I think will help? Number one, I think that sometimes we have a, we tend to, in this discussion, we tend to forget what is happening in this world. This is God's world. And that he has a plan to glorify himself and to obtain a bride for his son for his glory. And in that, Romans 9 is clear, there are, there are certain vessels that are prepared for destruction and others that are not. 
And so what is, what's happening in this world right now is not just God just shaking the dice and throwing everything out there and seeing what happens with people with their free will. What's happening is he is building, that he's, he's drawing everything to a head to when Christ is going to come again and usher in the eternal age with this people that Christ atoned for. Um, so, that's, so that's all happening right now. So it's not just like God's trying to figure out what's going to happen. Secondly, the London Baptist Confession of God's Creed says this, to try, to try to be careful about this. So it says, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatever, whatsoever come to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God, is God neither the author of sin, nor has fellowship with any sin therein, Amen. nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather it's established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things in power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. So, now if you take that in light, what John was saying, Dick was saying, let me read to you Isaiah 10, verse um, 5, starting here, okay? And I think this is so clear, really. He's dealing with judgment against his people through Assyria. And so he says here in verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. So God is sending Assyria. He's the rod in his hand. And against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize and plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Verse 7. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not think so think. But in his heart is to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. The point, that, did you see it there? That, that Assyria is the rod in God's hand, and they're just doing what they want to do. But God is using them to bring his wrath against the nation. They're up and in their free will. Their desire is to destroy nations. But God is using them. He's the one who's called them to it, even. And he's using them for his purpose, which, again, if we back, back it up to that first point I was trying to make, everything is happening according to, according to the counsel of God's will because Amen. God is bringing about a glorious state of existence for those he's had mercy on who don't deserve it, mm-hmm. that he might be glorified and worshipped and exalted. And I, I'm... In my flesh, I know that, that I will some point, points want to bristle against that, but then I remind myself that I'm, I'm dust. <laughs> you know, if we were thinking of our Sunday, Sunday school this morning, God is far much wiser than I am, and what my God does is right. And so I, I trust Him. He has loved us and died of what's morally right and what's morally wrong. He yes. has. And, and, the, and the heart of man doesn't choose to ever do what is right apart from His intervention. That's the thing is that we left to our own devices don't choose what is right. That's why he must intercede. That's why he must send his son. Because we, we choose infallibly to sin. So yeah. So if you go, can I, if I go back to Isaiah, so down to verse 15, he says, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? So Assyria is the axe head, right? And he says, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled. So again, it's God, he's fine, he said, I'm doing this. And who are you, Assyria? You're just the axe head 
I'm the one swinging it. Yeah. Who are you to boast? And the Assyrians like, and, were the most barbaric people. Yeah, the yeah, most yeah. barbaric people yeah. in scripture. The person in the New Testament it talks about Jesus says to love those that are your enemies. So, yeah. So, yeah, How do we deal with that? Sure. No, yeah, that's good ballad. Yeah. But I'm just saying so we do have two different pictures of what is right and what is wrong. And Obviously, we wouldn't be doing that kind of stuff as a Christian now, what was being done in the Old Testament. So, yeah. Well, because of what the Old Covenant was, right? They are, supposed, they are in Canaan, which is a type of that eternal glory and hope. And so God's command was for them to, to rid out the sin. To, so we talk about the holy wars in Scripture. Mm-hmm. It's not like God was um, going on genocide there. Like we think of genocide... Today, that's a neat, that's a bad word. Every time I think of genocide, that's evil. Let's pray for these people. That's not genocide back then. That's God's holy wrath and judgment being poured out, which is going to happen again. Yeah, that's the hard part. Well, it's it's hard because, part you know. When you get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus is full of love. And not in, when, uh, what was it, is it Malthesis? The guy who chops off the ear, and Jesus says, no, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, yeah. Amen. So, but again, we have to think of that end goal, right? Because at that point, we're moving towards Jesus going to the cross to be the substitute. And so what's Peter going to do? Stop it? Remember earlier, Peter was like, no, Lord, I'm not going to let you go to the cross. Get behind behind me, Satan. Jesus is also the mighty warrior in Revelation. I mean, he's the one who is, he's the king of his army, the church. He's the one who's going to throw everybody into hell. Well, Dale, you know, it's kind of easy. I'll just say this last thing. It's kind of easy when us as Christians, we're sheltered within the walls of our gathering. But when you get out there and you start finding out the people who hate God with a passion do believe God is a God of genocide, do believe that God is evil. And they start saying, well, what about your God, you know, commanding Joshua to chop, expecting women with babies that fly out of the womb this is the God you worship. So what you're talking about is dealing in the realm of theodicy, right? And so theodicy is the vindication of God in the presence of evil. So apologetically, I can just tell you that um, I grew up in San Francisco, and I know a lot of people who have that worldview. But once you try to use that worldview to establish your basis on who God is and how God is this, you know, God is not omni benevolent he's not yeah but he's not all he's not he's not all loving and i had to learn that the hard way in the school of hard knocks where when you're out there trying to defend your faith the reformed faith we all believe up here is the best expression of who god is when it comes to this because when you start getting into the realm of the defense of the faith you start seeing the inconsistencies that arise when one tries to attempt to use things that are extra Biblical. I mean, there's a whole laundry list of scriptures up here that um, I write down so that when people struggle with this, and I'd be happy to go through some of them with you, but the Lord himself says, I know that no purpose can, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. It says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps, Proverbs 16, 9. And this one really jumps out to me in Jeremiah 10, 23. Oh, Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. 
It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. So libertarian free will is a fallacy that we've all been taught through secular humanism. And when you really dive into the scriptures, you start to see how fallacious it becomes. And I think it's one of those things that through prayer and study and when you're fed to the wolves, you kind of you don't have a choice but to learn a little bit quicker. And it is, J.C. Ryle said, there's nothing more offensive to the human heart than the sovereignty of God. It is very difficult. It's a tough topic. There's hard sayings in scripture. But I believe your elders care for you and everyone here and wants, you know, the best for us to know what's right. It's absolutely something to wrestle with. Uh, Dale, because it's it's not an easy thing to think about from our perspective. Again, we're limited in our intellect, so to try to understand an infinite doctrine like the meticulous sovereignty of God that he has control over every month, we can't even fathom that. And so to try to make sense of that, we, we just have to keep going back to the word and, and letting the scripture tell us how to think about those kinds of things. Chris, real quick, we got to wrap it up. It's yeah. 8.07. We're 10 minutes after we should be done. So, Chris, real quick. So, I just wanted to back you guys up um, and just to try to simplify things as much as I can. Okay. So, to, so, basically, here's a Proverbs 21, uh, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water. He turneth it wherever he will. Yeah. So, uh, a very, very, very simple piece of scripture to back up what John already said. Um, and the point of saying a king, by the way, is that if he could do it to a king, right. then why anybody of a lesser station as well? Right, right. I'm getting right. that. Hold yeah. on. So basically, that's a, a small verse to really understand the point of a politician. So then what Paul's saying, to back that up, um, Romans 1, just like the later half of Romans 1, is basically saying how um, verse 25 onward, who changed the truth of God into a lie, people who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worship and serve the creature more than the creator. And skipping to 26, for this cause God gave them up, the vile affections. So God is basically giving up these dead people to the dogs, and that's how they are being enslaved like dolls. They are being enslaved by a new master, and that new master is sin. But then what about the opposite? The opposite being John chapter 15, Jesus speaking, uh, 16, verse 16 in chapter 15. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. For whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. But the, basically the beginning part of verse 16, that you haven't chosen yourself, Jesus has chosen you and has also ordained you. Thanks, Christopher. Christopher. I appreciate that, guys. Good discussions tonight, everyone. I think we talk, tackled some pretty big topics. You don't expect to get real easy ones on a Q&A <laughs> night like tonight, so we try to come prepared, and uh, we're grateful to be able to wrestle through these things together with you. So um, let's close with a word of prayer, and then we will dismiss. And, of course, if you need to talk a little bit more afterwards, we can do that as well. Gracious and heavenly God, we love you, and we thank you for the way that you open up our eyes through the power of the Holy Spirit that we might not see you as a complete and utter mystery, Lord, but the things that we need to know about you, you do reveal to us. And you can settle our hearts down, Father, even when we are wrestling with these doctrines. Father, you can give us peace and, and reveal what we need to see. So, God, help us to also be humble and rec recognizing that we don't need to see everything either. Mm -hmm. Help us to recognize that there are parts about you that will remain uh, difficult for us to understand. And yet we are called to walk with faith like children. We are to, to step forward. That's in no way a call to be irresponsible with our intellect. 
But God, help us to also remain humble in knowing that uh, the greatness of who you are, Lord God, is something we can hardly grab hold of. Uh, But Father, thank you again for bringing us to this fellowship. Help us to, as a church, grow stronger in our understanding of your word. Help us to be able to not only know it, but to apply it, Lord God. Give us a determination uh, to, by your help and by your strength, to glorify you with everything that we do and say and feel. And we pray this all in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Amen. Amen.